0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry?
1: To Good evening. Welcome again. Welcome to the Nook. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, to a cool conditioned spot out of the mug and awfulness of spring weather here in Chicago. Go grab something that amuses you and settle down. Go curl up in the shadow with a friend. Ah, you noticed. Yes, there's new art on the wall. I scan a lot of websites looking for art for the nook. It's like wandering the dark corners of people's imaginations, trying to find something interesting, something awful, something delightful to share. And occasionally, occasionally, a bright light shines. Occasionally, I find a few gems. This ghostly little piece caught my eye right away. Maybe it was the wispy spiderweb quality of the shape. Maybe... Maybe it was the sense of utter forlorn sadness expressed by the body language of the shape. Well, anyway, the image is by Mariana Stelmach. Mariana was born in Warsaw, Poland in 1984. She said she's been drawing for fun since she was a kid, but never wanted to go to painting school because she felt that formal art education deprived students of their individuality and that the Teachers in art schools imposed their own styles onto that of the students, so she trained in other fields. In high school, she studied jewelry. In university, she majored in sociology and trained as a physical therapist. Drawing, however, remained a hobby, and she did it sporadically, using what she calls traditional methods. I suppose that means paint on canvas or ink on paper, whatever— Since 2009, however, she's been using various computer programs to make art, and now creates using Photoshop. I think her work is stunning, and you can see more of it on the website below. Oh, before we go much further, I have something of an outside message for you. Uh, This is from a friend of the Nook, a friend of Tales to Terrify, a friend of the Starship Sofa, and, well... Just a friend, a friend of the world of fiction writing and story podcasting in general. Here is Matthew Sanborn Smith to tell you about. Well, he'll tell you about it. Matthew?
2: Hello, my happenin'... Holy crap, is that the date? This is your behind-the-times host, Matthew Sanborn-Smith, seeing that his wrist calendar says it's already May. I've got some catching up to do before it's May not. Being May, maybe, means that it's time for Beware the Harry Mango's most exciting event of 1978, Mucho Mango Mayo! Twist your iPod's little tiny rabbit ears toward the sexiest station on your FM dial, BewaretheHarryMango.com. Or download the show onto the nearest 8-track tape and loop me until the battery on your brother's Trans Am goes dead. You'll get a new episode every single day in the 30 days of May damn it when did they add that in the 80s in the 31 days of May brought to you by the not even ready for not primetime players me I'd say more but I suddenly have a desire to write, record, edit and post one more episode and run it on the date formerly known as June 1st and hopefully not in the really near future May 32nd Eve so listen out for definitely 30 of those days to 96.77% of the most awesome podcast in the world that resides at Beware the Mango. BewareTheHarryMango man I'm glad that's over
1: Uh, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Huh. You know, I don't think I have ever spoken that fast. Huh. Well, as Matthew said, tune in. Go, Harry Mango. And enjoy. Okay. Are we all recovered? Are we all settled in? All comfortable? Good. Here is something I've been meaning to mention, and I've been reminded by Big Daddy Tony C. Smith over in Starship Sofa Land. He produces this effort and makes sure we have all the candles and gloom that we need to keep the voices in the air— and that's what I've been meaning to mention. Tales to Terrify is looking for voices. The lifeblood of this or any fiction-themed podcast, apart from good stories, which is the heart of it all, is good narrators. Uh, we're fortunate at Tales to Terrify. We've got quite a few good voices. uh And, of course, we need more. You see, for every story you hear in the Nook, there are dozens more waiting bodies and breath to come to life. So, if you have the urge, and of course a microphone and an editing program, let us know. We can use you. Send word to tales to terrify at com. That's all one word, of course. Uh, maybe a short audition piece, a minute or so, would help, just so we get a notion of what sort of audio character you've got and what story we've got in the queue that might be just right for you. Oh, by the way, yes, we always look for stories, too. Uh, same address, standard submission formats. Uh We like everything from flash fiction up to about 7,000 words. We'll also consider longer tales that can be broken into episodes and maybe cast in two or three weekly segments, but we'll talk about all that. Just send us something of yours that you really, really like and that you think might leave everyone with a chill and a shiver for the walk home. That's again tales to terrify at gmail dot com Poetry. We have a, a brief, chilly, little apocalyptic piece tonight from Marge Simon. Marge has been here before, you know her. She and her husband, Bruce Boston, are perennial Bram Stoker nominees for poetry. And tonight's poem is from Marge's Stoker-nominated collection, Unearthly Delights. Here is Marge's...
3: Yours or mine. Pretend that nothing's changed as I guide you past the broken doors, the lines of empty cars beneath a dull orange sky. We keep upwind of the smell until we reach the sea. You spread a tablecloth. I bring rocks to hold it down against the wind. You've prepared a mock picnic of conversation, fictive wine and camembert. Sand sticks to your lips You laugh a little too hard, and I kiss you. The dogs follow sunset. They travel in packs, some with collars. I've grown too weak to beat them off. Days ago I'd try, but even the small ones are gone. We brought the gun. One bullet left. Yours or mine.
1: I don't want to jump in right away and fill the silence that that needs to follow a poem like that. This is everything a poem needs to be. It's evocative, succinct. It's a world in a few words. So, thank you, Marge, and thank you again to Celia for giving body to the words. Uh, I've mentioned before, Cecilia is my wife. Thanks again, Cecilia. Okay, we took a break last week from the tiny terrors that were available to us in Dark Moon Books' anthology, Slices of Flesh. You remember? 90 or so of the best horror writers and me presenting 90 slices of flash fiction, that is. Uh, I was reminded just this morning... When I found a package had arrived through the slot down below and had lain there in the inner dark all night long. It was a copy of Slices of Flesh, one that I had ordered. I had received my contributor's ebook edition and my contributor's inked paper edition earlier, but this is the one I bought. I paid for it because I thought it would be a good thing to do. Contribute, you know, contribute to the cause. Stan Swanson and Dark Moon are helping to support, uh, actually causes, adult literacy, uh the HWA Hardship Fund, et al. So we're back to that, and I'll read you something from it right now. So settle down and see here. Ah, yeah, yeah. This will do for tonight. It's a story by Brad C. Hodson, and it is called Breathe. In the space between breaths, I saw her gliding across the dance floor, white dress clinging to her curves and flowing behind her like she was submerged, auburn hair cradling a face only Botticelli could have painted. She reached for me, a smile teasing her mouth, crystal eyes moist. When I inhaled, she was gone. Music pounding in my head, my third Red Bull and vodka, empty on the bar. I, I thought I'd been hallucinating. Becky rubbed my cheek and asked if I was feeling all right. Yeah, I said, yeah, it's nothing. Three weeks later, the water at Malibu, still icy despite the July heat, I saw her again. Underwater, she looked the same, only a tear ran impossibly, down her cheek and caught her smile. She almost made it to me before the burning in my lungs forced me to break the surface and breathe. And when I went back under, she was gone. This time I wasn't all right. This time I dove and dove, searching the water for her. Becky couldn't talk me out of the ocean and and found a lifeguard to drag me ashore. He... She accused us of being high and made us leave. On the drive home, Becky started to cry. This is just like before, she said. No, it's not. It's nothing like before. Before was horrible. Before was a nightmare. I didn't want to relive. She sniffed and smeared a tear across her cheek. "'Are you having an episode?' "'An episode.' "'That was what she called it. "'That was how she referred to finding me curled against the cold porcelain of my toilet, "'an empty bottle of pills at my feet, "'and a butcher knife in my hand, screaming about the hole inside of me. "'No.' "'Then what was that back there?' Uh, "'I didn't have an answer.' When I dropped her off, she held her arms close to her chest and stared at the ground. Her face had gone pale. I can't take it if it happens again, she said. It won't. I know you can't control it, but I just... She couldn't finish. Without looking at me, she kissed my cheek and went inside. At home, I stared at the ceiling above the bed finished off a six-pack. The woman I had seen had been real. I I knew it, the way you know you've slept too late. It was tangled worry wedged deep inside, and no matter how I worked at it, I couldn't get it straight. I took a breath, and for no reason at all, held it. she was there, drifting from my ceiling like a feather coming to rest on me. Her dress was cool, white satin, her arms even cooler. She weighed so little. The tear rolled from her lips to crash hot and salty onto my own. Her eyes took mine, and I couldn't look away. Her hands caressed my face, and the feel of her against me, of her hair, falling around my face, and her thighs pressed against my hips, made me whole. Whoever she was, she knew I had been broken— was perhaps broken like me, and we fit together like two statues carved from the same piece of marble. She smelled of lilies and fresh-flowing water, smelled of spring, and before I could take a breath to speak, her mouth found mine. Her fingers tangled in my hair, her body melting into me, and I could think of nothing but being with her. When she pulled away, I took a breath She was gone. For the next five nights I lay in bed, holding my breath until my chest ached and my vision blurred, willing her to return. Every night she was there, her mouth instantly on mine, her legs alongside me, her fingers intertwined. Becky stopped calling after the fourth night of not answering the phone. On the sixth night, as I held my breath, the woman appeared. She reached down and slid me into her, rocking back to take me inside. I gasped, and she was gone. Tonight, tonight... I'll be ready. With a plastic bag over my head held in place by the tape around my throat, I won't let her go. We'll make love, and after, holding each other as I slip into the dark, I'll know that she'll be waiting there for me, waiting in that space between breath. Brad C. Hodson is a writer living in Los Angeles. He's got a story that I can barely pronounce, even though I am part Italian myself. It is called I Donna Iolo. It's in John Skip's Werewolves and Shapeshifters, Encounters with the Beast Within, which also features stories by Neil Gaiman, George R.R. R. Martin, Charlene Harris, Joe R. Lansdale, H.P. Lovecraft, many others. For more information, check out www.brad-hodson.com, where you can also find out more about his feature film, the horror comedy, George's Intervention. You see, George is a zombie, and George's friends are intervening to convince George to stop eating people and to enter a zombie rehab. Needless to say, things don't go quite as planned. Anyway, have a look at Brad's site, and please buy a copy of Slices of Flesh. You'll enjoy it, and it'll help. And I've got another little note and lest you think I'm doing these for commercial reasons, I, I'm really not. Uh It's just because I want you to know a few things about things that are going on in the horror world. For several years, uh the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society has been turning out films, gaming gear, other nifty stuff. And through their audio wing, the Dark Adventure Radio Theater they do some truly lovingly recreated old-time radio dramas based on, of course, H.P. Lovecraft tales. So far, they've done At the Mountains of Madness, excellent, The Dunwich Horror, The Shadow Out of Time, and The Shadow Over Innsmouth, which I have not heard. And I guess now that their most recent feature film, The Whisperer in Darkness, which we talked about a few weeks ago, is out, Sean Branny, the adapter, director, and public face of the HPLHS, has announced the next story for the Dark Adventure Radio Theater. It will be, hold your breaths, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Uh, This is a large piece at about 52,000 words or so. It's almost a novel and is a tale of sorcery, graveyard prowling alchemy and hideous resurrection lovecraft never liked the story he said it was quote a cumbrous creaking bit of self-conscious antiquarianism and if he said that well anyway it was never published during his lifetime and it was only due to august derlith and donald wandry that the case of charles dexter ward saw ink in weird tales Many find this to be their favorite Lovecraft tale. I quite like it, and I am certainly looking forward to the Historical Society's production. Sean Branny says the first draft of the script is finished, and what that means as to when we might expect a disc to ship, only the great old ones know. I stopped there for a bit, hoping that maybe maybe we could all take a listen to the to the thunder outside but that's the way of thunder i guess it's never there when you need it maybe we're too deep here in the, the nook maybe we're too deep into the quiet of the evening for even outside thunder to penetrate anyway i'm going to move along here our main fiction tonight comes from john shirley john shirley was born in houston texas and grew up in portland oregon His earliest novels were Transmaniacon and Dracula in Love for Zebra Books and City Kamawakan, a proto-cyberpunk novel for Delacorte. He also wrote the Cyberpunk Trilogy, a song called Youth for Warner Books, which was re-released in 2012 as an omnibus by Prime Books. Here is John Shirley's
4: Isolation Point. Gage pushed the door of his cabin open with his booted foot, as he always did, peering inside, right and left, without going in, to make sure no one was hiding there waiting for him. He looked around, saw only his single bunk, neatly made up, with a solar-powered lamp on a small stand behind it, glowing faintly in the overcast, late-afternoon gloom. Faces did stare back at him, the old magazine photos of smiling people, mostly girls, on the wall over his bunk. The wooden chair stood just where he'd left it, pulled back slightly from the metal table with its two coffee cups, long bereft of coffee, and his collection of pens, stacks of spiral notebooks, and the radio. Above the table were the shelves of random books, many of them blackened at the edges, foraged from a burned library in sweetbite. The axe leaned on the stack of firewood beside the Riverstone fireplace, opposite the old wood stove with its two pots. It was tedious having to stop and look around in the cabin and the outhouse before going in, day after day. But as he went inside, he told himself that the first time he neglected to do it, someone would be there to brain him with his own axe. He closed and barred the door behind him, saw that the fire was out, but went immediately to the desk and stood there, looking out the window. It was nailed shut and curtained, a risk having a window at all. But he could see the light was dimming, the clouds shrugging together for rain. The charge on the lamp was low, so he plugged it into the socket that connected to the solar collection panel on the roof, and the lamp's charge meter bobbed to near full. He dialed up the light and looked at the radio, but decided not to try it. He was usually depressed for a while after listening to the radio and didn't want to ruin his hopeful mood. He leaned his shotgun against the wall, within reach, put the binoculars on a stack of notebooks, and sat down at the table. He adjusted the shim under the short table leg to minimize the wobbling, picked up a pen, and wrote his newest journal entry. His fingers were stiff with the chill, but he wanted to tell his journal what had happened more than he wanted to stoke up the fire. November 1st, 2023. I saw her again this afternoon, about 45 minutes ago. She was standing on what was left of the old marina, coming out from all those burned-out buildings along San Andreas Spit, across the river's mouth from me. She was standing right where the river meets the tidal push from the ocean. That always seemed suggestive to me, the river flowing into the ocean, the ocean pushing back, the two kind of mingling, Here's some silt, and here's some salt back at you. Huh. Silt and salt. Never noticed how close those words were before now. I looked at her in the binoculars, and when she saw I was doing that, she spread her arms and smiled as if to say, Check me out! Not that I could see much of her under all those clothes. It's pretty brisk out now. Northern coast this time of the year, wind off the sea— and she was wearing a big bulky green ski jacket and a watch cap and jeans and boots. She had a 3006 bolt bolt-action deer rifle leaned against a rock. She never went far from it. She's got long, wavy chestnut hair, and her face, what I could make out, seemed kind of pleasant. She's not tall. Taking into account the silhouette of her legs, she seems slim. Not that there's anybody obese left. Not on this continent, anyway. She seemed energetic. Confident. I wonder if she found a new supply drop somewhere. If she found it first, she could be doing well. Another reason to make contact. But who knows what she's up to. She could be talking to men at a safe distance all over the county. Getting them to leave her gifts or something. But that'd be risky. They'll kill her eventually. Unless someone finds a cure for Facts soon. Not very goddamn likely. Anyway, it felt good talking to her. Shouting back and forth, really. I got pretty hoarse, since of course she was several hundred feet from me. Said she was from San Francisco. Got out just in time. Told her I was from Sacramento. She laughed when I told her this little peninsula of mine is called Isolation Point. had to swear and cross my heart it was always called that. She said she used to be a high school English teacher. Told her, Hey, that's amazing. I used to be a high school student. She laughed. I could just barely hear her laugh across the river. She asked, What did I used to do? Said I managed some restaurants. Wanted to be a journalist. Write about America. Big story came. No one to tell it to. She said I could still write. I said, For who? She said, For people. "'You leave the writing in places and other people find it.' "'I'd read it,' she said. "'I said okay, thinking that writing for one person at a time wasn't what I had in mind. "'But you scale down your dreams now. Way down.' "'I was running out of breath, and my voice was going with all the yelling back and forth, "'so I asked her name. Told her mine. "'Our ages too Me, forty-three. She, thirty-four. "'I tried to think of some way to ask her to come closer.' maybe at the fence, to ask her without scaring her. But I couldn't think of any way, and then she waved and picked up her rifle and walked off. Her name's Brenda. I was hiking back to the cabin going, Brenda, Brenda, over and over like an idiot, like I'm 12. Not surprising after two years alone here, I guess. It was good just to see someone who isn't trying to kill me. Wish the dog would come back. Someone probably ate him, though. I need to check the fence again. Going to do it now. It might rain. Might get dark before I'm back. Might be someone there. I've got the shotgun. Not that I can afford to use the shells. The sight of the gun keeps people back, though. If they stay beyond the 19. Going now. Should stay here. Nah. Too antsy. Gage put the pen down and picked up his shotgun. "'That's right,' he said aloud. "'Put down the pen. Pick up the gun.' He had to talk aloud fairly often, just to hear a human voice. Brenda's was the first he'd heard, except for the warning noise, for three months. "'That's how it is,' he said, hearing the hoarseness in his voice from all that shouting. "'Bad time to get laryngitis. Bad time to get anything.' He'd almost died of pneumonia once. No pharmacies anymore. You ran into a doctor, he'd try to kill you. He'd be sorry afterwards, but that didn't do you any good. Gage unbarred the door and went out, closing the door carefully behind him. There was still some light. He walked out to the edge of the trees to take a quick look out at the Pacific, beyond the edge of the cliff fifty yards away. It was steely under the clouds. He was looking for boats and hoping he wouldn't see one. Nothing out there, except maybe that slick black oblong appearing and disappearing. A whale. At least the animals were doing better now. He'd chosen this little finger of land with its single intact cabin, partly because there was no easy way to land a boat. Mostly the sea was too rough around it. You could maybe come in from the sea up into the mouth of the river Clamber onto the big, slippery, wet-crab-twitchy rocks that edged the river bank, if you could secure your boat so it didn't float away. But the current was so strong there, and no one had ever tried it that he knew of. His cabin was pretty well hidden in the trees, after all, and it didn't look like much was here. And of course, they were as scared of him as he was of them. But then, that's what his father had told him about Rattlesnakes. He turned and tramped through the pine trees toward the fence, a quarter mile back, noticing, for the first time in a year or more, the smell of pine needles mingling with the living scent of the sea. Funny how you see a girl and start to wake up and notice things around you again, to care about how things smell and look and feel. The wind off the sea keened between the trees and made the hackles rise on the back of his neck. He buttoned the collar of his thick, blue, REI snow-lined jacket with his left hand, the other keeping the Remington 12-gauge tucked up under his right armpit, pressed against him, the breech block cupped in his palm. He was good at getting the Remington popped fast to his shoulder for firing. So far, nobody had noticed what a lame shot he was. The two guys he'd killed since coming to the area, killed four months apart, had both got in at close to point-blank range. That was the ag-fac for you. If people sniped at you, it was out of desperation, not because of the ag-fac. He felt the wind tugging at his streaked beard, his long, sandy hair. I must be getting pretty shaggy, he said to a red squirrel, looking beadily down from a low branch. But the only thing I've got left to cut it with is a knife, and it's so dull. I'm down to my last cake of soap. Half a cake, really. For two years, cognizant that no one on the continent was making soap anymore, he'd only washed when he could no longer bear his own smell. The squirrel clicked its claws up the tree, looking for a place to curl up out of the wind, and Gage continued, five minutes later cutting the old deer path he took to the fence. Another ten minutes, and he was there. A twenty-five-foot hurricane fence with anti-personnel wire across the top in a Y-frame. The fence and the place at the river where he got the fish and the crabs were two of the main reasons he'd chosen this spot. There was no gate in the fence. They'd used a chopper landing pad of cracked asphalt near the edge of the cliff on the south side of the Cape. There'd been some kind of military satellite monitoring station here, once, and the fence, he figured, had been put up to keep people away from it. It kept bears and wolves out, too. The post building had crumbled into the sea after a bad storm. You could still see the satellite.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig.
4: Dish sticking up out of the water at low tide, all rusty. The cabin was all that was left. There was forage, if he knew where to look. There was river water to filter. There was a way he knew to get around the fence, underneath its southern end, when he was willing to try his luck checking the crossroads at Sweet Bite Point for supply drops. But he hadn't been down to the crossroads in seven months. Previous time, someone had almost gotten him, so he stayed out here as long as he could. It was a great spot to survive in, if you wanted to survive. He'd almost stopped wanting to. The fence looked perfectly upright, unbreached, so far as he could see from here, no more rusted than last time. Of course, a determined man could get over it, or around it, if you didn't mind clambering over a sheer drop, but it was rare for anyone to come out onto the cape. There weren't many left to come. He walked along the fence away south, wondering what brought him here. He had a sort of instinct, especially sharp post-ag fact, that kept him alive, and usually it had its reasons for things. There it was, the sound of a dog barking. He hoped it was Gassy. "'Hey, Gassy!' he shouted, beginning to trot along the fence. "'Yo, dog!' "'Be a great day, meeting a woman, sort of, and getting his dog back, too. "'Gassy!' Then it occurred to him to wonder who the dog was barking at, maybe a raccoon, maybe not. He bit off another shout, annoyed with himself for getting carried away, shouting, letting people know where he was. He circled a lichen-yellowed boulder that hulked up to his own height and came upon Gassy and the stranger, who was just a few steps beyond the nineteen. Gassy was on this side of the fence and the man was on the other side, staring, mouth agape, at the hole the dog had dug under the fence to get in. Despite the dangerous presence of the stranger, Gage shook his head in admiration at the dog's handiwork. It was the same spot he'd gotten out at. Some critter, raccoon or skunk, had dug a hole under the fence where the ground was soft, and the dog had widened it and gotten out and wandered off more than a month ago. Gage had waited a week, then decided he had to fill the hole in. Here he was, gassy, his ribs sticking out, limping a little, but scarcely the worse for wear. A brown-speckled, tongue-drooping mix of a pit bull with his wedge-shaped head and some other breed Gage had never been sure of. The stranger, a gawky, emaciated man in the tatters of an army uniform who'd let his hair fall into accidental dreadlocks, googled stupidly at the hole, then jerked his head up as Gage approached the dog Gage reckoned the stranger, carrying an altered axe handle at 21 paces away with the fence between them. Not at the 19 yet. Everyone alive on this continent was good at judging distances instantly. 19 paces, for most people, was the AGFAC warning distance. It was possible to remain this side of psychotic, like this side of the fence, beyond 19 paces from another human being. 19 paces or less, You'd go for them, with everything you had, to kill them. And they'd go at you just the same. Which was why most people in North America had died over the past few years. A couple of phases from one of the first and last newspaper articles came to his mind. The very wiring of the brain altered from within. That portion of the brain so different victims become another species. You're outside the margin, dude, Gage said. You can still back up. He knew he should probably kill the guy whether he backed up or not, on general principle. For one thing, the guy was probably planning to kill and eat his dog. For another, now that the son of a bitch knew there was someone camped on the other side of the fence, he'd come over to forage and kill. Or rather, to kill and forage. But you clung to what dignity you could. gauged it anyway. Killing people when you didn't absolutely have to lacked dignity, in Gage's view. "'Don't come no closer,' the man said. He hefted the axe handle warningly. It was missing its axe blade, but he'd found a stiff blade from a kitchen knife somewhere, and he'd pushed it into a crack at one end of the handle and wrapped it in place with black electric tape. "'You were a soldier,' Gage observed. "'Where's your weapon?' "'Oh, I got it. Real close.' the man said. After thinking laboriously a moment, he said, "'My partner's got it trained on your ass right now!' Gage laughed. "'No one's got a partner. I saw some people try it before I came here, watched from a roof for two days. They tried partnering by staying twenty feet away from each other, but eventually they would fuck that up, get too close, and you know what happened. Every time. You haven't got a partner. Or a gun.' The man shrugged. He wasn't going to waste his breath on any more lies. He looked at the dog, licking his lips. Finally, he said, "'You knock that dog in the head. Push it where I can get it, and I'll go away for good.'" "'That dog's worth ten like you,' Gage said. He made up his mind. It'd be pretty ironic if the AGFAC had worn off finally, and he and Brenda were staying out of reach for no reason." Of course, there was no reason to think it ever wore off. But everyone, as far as he knew, hoped it would eventually. They didn't know what caused it exactly. There were lots of theories. So maybe it wore off as mysteriously as it came. For no good reason, the brain would just revert to normal. Yeah, right. But for Brenda's sake, he stepped closer to the stranger within the 19 to see if the agfac was still there in him. He felt it immediately. The clutching up feeling the hot geysering from the back of his skull, the heat spreading to his face, his arms, the tightening of his hands, his jaws, the background humming, the tight focus on his enemy, and the change in the way things look, going almost colorless. Not black and white, but sickly sepia and gray, with shadows all deep and inky. Since Gage had come within the 19, the stranger was seized by the Fact too, and his face went beet red, the veins at his temples popping up. As if propelled from behind, he came rushing at Gage, stopped only by the fence, hammering at the chain links with his axe handle, making that "ee" sound in the back of his throat they all made. The sound Gage might have been making himself. He could never tell somehow. Hammering the axe handle to splinters as Gage shoved the barrel of the shotgun through a fence link and pulled the trigger at point-blank range. The stranger fell away, gasping and dying. The agfak ebbed. Color seeped back into the world. Gage heard the dog barking and saw it start for the hole in the fence, wanting to get at the stranger's body. No, Gassy, Gage said, feeling tired and empty and half-dead himself. He grabbed the dog by its short tail, pulled it back before it was quite through the hole. It snarled at him, but let him do it. He blocked up the hole with rocks, then started toward the end of the fence, where it projected over the cliff. He'd have to go down by the rocks, about 50 feet south of the fence's end, thread the path, climb the other cliff, to get the body, drag it to the sea. A lot of work. But he didn't want to leave the bloody corpse there for Brenda to find. He wanted her to come to the fence, so he trudged off toward the cliffs. November 2nd, 2023. My face hurts from scraping at it with that knife. Used up a lot of soap in place of shaving cream. Hope the contusions go down before she sees me up close. Not too close, of course. Will she come? She'd be foolish to come. She doesn't know me. She can see the fence from across the river, but she doesn't know if it'll keep her safe from me. I might have a gate for all she knows. She's never been out to the point. She says she's coming. We agreed on high noon. She's got a longer-range weapon than me. She doesn't seem stupid. She'll be smart about it. She'll get close enough to take stock of the situation, with that gun right up against her shoulder, but not so close I could rush her. I think she does understand that outside the AGFAC, I'm not some thug, some rapist. But she may decide not to take the chance. Or someone may kill her before she gets here. I think it's almost noon. Hi! Can you see me Okay. Gage called, spreading his hand so she could see he didn't have the shotgun. She was still about a hundred feet off, on the other side of the fence, assessing the situation from cover like he figured she would. The rifle propped on the top of a big tree stump and pointed right at him. Dangerous, not to bring the shotgun. But it was meaningful. They both knew that. Not carrying your gun was like, in the old days, bringing a bouquet of flowers. Still, this could be a setup. She could be after his goods. She could want his cabin, maybe. She could shoot him, and Gassy, if she had the ammo. Shoot him from safety where she was. Nothing to stop her. A couple of rounds, one get through that fence, down he'd go. He kept his arms spread. Standing in the open, a little clearing with just rock-strewn dirt on the ground, so she could see he didn't have the shotgun anywhere near, like hidden behind a rock close to him. His gun could be somewhere in the brush, of course, but at least it wasn't in easy reach. Slowly, she got out from behind the stump and walked toward him. She glanced right and left now and then. Looked at the dog, sitting there wagging its tail beside him, she smiled. "'Hi, Brenda,' he said when she got to about twenty-one paces and stopped. Slowly, she lowered the gun, holding it cradled in her arms." Then she sat down, her legs crossed, deciding to trust him that much. He sat down too, on the other side of the fence. The dog put his head on Gage's lap. I'm embarrassed to tell you his name, Gage said, petting the dog. It's Gassy. Gassy? She laughed. After Lassie, right? She had all of her teeth, which was unusual in itself. Her face had lots of roundness to it but she wasn't pie-faced. Her eyes were dark brown, he saw, and the shape of them suggested she had some American Indian blood. She'd put her hair up in a simple kind of way, and she seemed clean. What now? He asked, as mildly, as casually, as much without pressure as he could. I don't know, she said. I just needed to see someone as up close as I could, and you seemed nice, she shrugged. As much as anyone can be with, the, you know. He nodded, deciding he needed to be as completely honest with her as possible. I tried it yesterday, when a stranger came up to the fence. I deliberately stepped closer, just to see. I always hope it might go away, sometime. I've never heard of it going away. No. Reports on the radio say it never has for anyone. Kids don't outgrow it. Old people don't get over it. It hit me the same as always. She nodded, not having to ask what happened. I don't feel bad, he added. Guy was trying to eat my dog. She nodded again. That she understood too, both sides. You fish? Sure. They talked a long time about practical things like that. He told her about his water filter, the crabs, the fish, the wild plants he knew. She knew them too. And about the forays to the food drops. ''They'll drop food to us sometimes, the foreign people,'' she said. ''But they seem to have just given up on curing it. Unless... you said you had a radio? You heard anything?'' He shook his head. ''Nothing new. One guy. Hard to get the signal. I think it was from the Virgin Islands. I had to move the radio around.'' He said the Japanese thought it was some kind of nanotech creation that got out of hand, like an artificial virus supposed to alter your brain wiring in a good way, does it in a bad way instead, jumps from person to person. Then there's the biowarfare theory, the mutated virus theory. The one I liked was about the schizophrenia virus. Back in the 20th century, some people thought a lot of mental illness is caused by a virus that gets in the brain. They think this is a mutation of the schizophrenia virus. They thought schizophrenia was something you could get from cat shit once. I always knew there was some reason I didn't like cats. She laughed. Whatever it is, he went on venting. You'd think someone would make some damn progress by now. No vaccines, nothing. It's like they're just waiting for us to die. Won't let anybody come into their perfect little countries. That blockade in Panama, shoot down our planes. Can you blame them? She asked. He knew what she meant. The world had watched as the aggression factor rolled over a hemisphere, as millions of people had killed one another. People in North America and Mexico, all the way to the geo quarantine at the Panama Canal. The world had watched as millions of longtime neighbors had killed one another, watched as an unthinkable number of husbands killed their wives and wives their husbands, as unspeakable quantities of children were murdered by parents, by siblings, by friends as others murdered their parents. As women throttled babies freshly plucked from the womb, and then wept in utter bafflement. He remembered a boy walking through the ruins of Sacramento, weeping. Why did I kill my mom? Why did I kill my mom? And then the boy had come within 19 steps, and without meaning to, Gage had to put him out of his misery. Nah, I don't blame them. I just... He didn't have to say it. She smiled sadly, and they understood one another. Nice not to have to shout. Yeah, I uh, have some dried fish for you, if you need it. I'll leave it at the fence. I thought maybe I'd loan you my solar radio, too, if you wanted. The dog dug a hole under the fence a ways down. I could push it under there, leave it for you to get later. You could see me walking a good quarter mile off from there. That's so sweet. You look like you carved up your face a bit. <laughs> the best I could do with what I had. You're still a nice-looking guy. Probably not when the ag hits, he thought, but he said only, Thanks. I'll borrow the radio. I promise to bring it back. November 6th, 2023. I've seen her every day but yesterday. I was really worried yesterday when she didn't come, but she had to duck a guy who'd gotten wind of her. He was stalking her. She finally managed to lure him up to a hill she knew real well, and she shot him from cover. Smart, cool-headed girl. I'm crazy about her. Of course, I can't get within 19 steps of her, but still crazy about her. She told me about a girl who lived down the street from her. They talked from rooftops sometimes. The girl would trade a look at her naked body to guys who'd come around, look up at her naked on the second floor balcony. She had a gun up there in case they started up. They'd leave her food and stuff, and they'd look at her naked and masturbate. It worked for a while, but of course some predator got wind of it, some guy who was always more or less agfac even before it came along, and he busted in and jumped her. Killed her, of course. The agfac won't be denied, but I figure her body was still warm afterwards. Lots of bodies get raped now. Why did Brenda tell me this story? Maybe suggesting we trusted each other enough to get naked, if only from a distance? I'm too embarrassed to masturbate, even if she's doing it, too. That desperate I'm not. I wrote her some poetry I'm going to leave for her. She might blow me off for good after she reads it, if she's got any taste. Feels like it might snow. Brenda said, hugging herself against the morning mist, the occasional gusts of cold wind. Kind of cold. I could go back, get you a blanket, toss it over. They were sitting in their usual spot, fence between them. Oh, it'd probably get stuck on the wire, she said. I could send Gassy over again to keep you warm. Last time he came over, he humped my leg. He did? I didn't see that. He was only momentarily tempted to say, "'I don't blame him.'" Even now, he could be slicker than that. "'There's something I wanted to talk to you about,' she said. She chewed her lip for a moment, then went on. "'Look, you ever hear about someone being cared of, like, a phobia before AGFAC? By getting used to whatever they were scared of, little by little? Scared of flying, they made you go to airports, sit in a plane, but then get off the plane before it flies?' look at pictures taken out a plane window till you're ready to fly. All that kind of thing, you know? Yeah, I forget what they call that. But you don't think the agfac would work that way. It's not a phobia. No, it isn't. But it's a kind of compulsive aversion for people when they get physically close, right? What if a person could sort of inure themselves to the presence of another person within 19 steps by slow degrees? make the brain accustomed to the other person, the wiring of the brain itself acclimated to them. How? It's so powerful that even if your eyes are shut and you can't see the person, soon as you know they're close, the agfac hits and you'll kill them. Whatever you do, the murder reflex comes out. I mean, I could probably find a way to restrain myself somehow for a while so I couldn't get loose too easily. So you could get close, but then, let's face it, you'd kill me. I mean, mothers killed children they loved all their lives. Sure, but suppose we both restrain ourselves somewhat. With rope, whatever, the weapon's off somewhere, we keep the fence between us at first, but we're basically within reach. I don't think I could even bite you through those links, but we could have some contact. The idea left him breathless. His blood raced as he thought about it. But then he shook his head. Even if we didn't hurt one another, we'd hate one another within the 19. There'd be no pleasure in it, just rage. Our brains would feel that way at first, but our bodies... Our bodies would... I think they'd respond. It'd be a kind of counterforce in the brain. Maybe enough after a while to... Oh, Gage, I can't take this distance from people much longer. I'm... I've got skin hunger. It's bad. It's bad. I have to try something. Hey, me too. And I really, really like you. I'd have liked you before all this stuff, I swear it. But even if we couldn't hurt each other, how would the encounter ever end? We'd be smashing at each other through the fence. That's the risk. There has to be some risk. There always was some risk. But Gage, I want to try. I think that if I'm starting to hurt myself against the fence... I'll finally manage to back off and the Agfac will go away. Then we can try again. We can inure. We can accustom. We can acclimate. Maybe you'll stop seeing me as the other. Maybe I'll be like an extension of you after a while, so the Agfac won't come anymore, at least when it's me. You mean, you want to get naked on either side of the fence? Yeah, well, I'll keep my coat on and some boots. Won't look too elegant, but... I'm burning to touch you. I want to love you. I want you to love me. She started to cry. Finally, he said yes. November 11th, 2023. The weather cleared up some, and partly naked we tried it. We each had our guns put away out of reach, but where the other could see it. She had some rope, left some for me. She'd pushed it through the mesh, inch by inch... "'while she was waiting for me. "'We took turns, measuring it out carefully. "'The rope went from a tree behind me to the fence, "'just enough so I could press against it, "'but restraining me so I couldn't start to climb over it easily. "'My arms were tied to my sides. "'That was tricky. "'Had to work with our teeth, "'use a fork in a tree to pull a knot taut, "'stuff like that. "'Laughing a lot back and forth "'as we worked out how to do it all alone, "'each on their side of the fence.' Of course, we knew it was still possible to get out of the rope, but it would take some time and the other could get away or get their gun. We thought maybe we'd be too frenzied with Kill Lust, or the other kind, to really work out how to attack the other person with all that stuff in the way. The AGFAC isn't about thinking or planning, God knows. I used up the last of my soap getting ready for this. She'd cleaned herself up, too. We came close, the fence between us, the rope restraining us. The agfac hit, and there was no remembering how we said we'd loved each other. There was no remembering how we wanted to trust. He tried to snap at her nose through the mesh, envisioned tearing it off with his teeth, but he couldn't reach her. She tried to bite into his chin, couldn't reach it. But their skin touched, through the links, and he did get a hard-on under the rope. It was roped to his belly, No way was it going to be free to go through that fence. She'd bite it off for sure. They writhed, and snapped and snarled, and then she managed to back away. Still, I swear, something did get through the AGFAC. Some other feeling. It really did get through. Just enough. We both got bloody on the fence, but we're going to try it again. We have a plan. A way to try it in the cabin. His heart was slamming in his chest, so loud he could hear it in the quiet of the cabin. He just lay there on his bunk, listening to his heart thudding, trying the ropes, hoping the self-restraint system he'd worked up was going to hold him long enough. He could get out of the ropes afterwards, but it'd take time. The dog was tied up in the woods. He was ready for her to come. Maybe she wouldn't show up. He'd lie here like an idiot, and some son of a bitch would climb over the fence and find him here before he got loose, and he'd be helpless, then dead. Big risk, trying it in the cabin this way. Risk from her, too. She said she was getting some control over the AGFAC, but how long would it last in close proximity? He knew he couldn't bear it if he killed her. If she killed him, well, it wouldn't matter. The door opened, and he looked up and saw her there, inside the 19, almost naked. Her hands were all muffled, tied together and smothered in big, thick, homemade boxing gloves, and her mouth was gagged. She gagged herself to try and keep her from biting him. The color drained from the room. The E ee- was building up in the back of his throat, was trying to get out of her, too. He could see her struggling to keep it back. But the other thing, the distance from the ag fact that they'd worked on, built up through the fence, that was there, too. He was able to look at her, like a man close to the sheet of flames in a forest fire, feeling the heat painfully but not quite so close he was burned yet. She waited there for a moment, looking at his ropes. Then she started toward him. He tried to hold on to the memory of her touch through the fence, the desire he felt for her, but the agfac rose up. He writhed against the ropes. She rushed him, her face reddening with agfac leaped on him, straddled him. It was funny how the two feelings were right there, so close, so distinct. Kill. Love. Almost intertwined, but not combined. Like, alternating. I just kept trying to drag my mind back to the love feeling. I looked in her eyes, saw her doing the same thing. Whole moments of close, intimate sanity, each one of those moments, impossible to explain how precious they were. Impossible. The agfac was still there, but somehow, for a few moments, they were in a kind of blessed state of betweenness. She was there, so close, her breath on his cheek, the feeling of her closeness like a hot meal after a week of hunger. Something in him, something that went to sleep during the aggression factor, quivered awake and brought color back to the room. Their eyes locked. Hers cleared, she stopped shaking. She stopped pounding at him and slipped him into her, pumped her hips, working the gag out of her mouth, chewing the gloves off of her hands so she could touch him. There was intimacy. After so much privation, there was a rapid mutual orgasm. Then he drew away from her instinctively as he came, and the fact returned, and he started thrashing against the ropes, trying to kill her and her own aggression broke free in response, and she started clawing at his eyes, snapping at his throat. She bit hard. She tore. His blood began to flow. Some of his rope gave way. Enough. He seized her by the throat, and, just to get her hands from his eyes, threw her off of him to the floor. He tore loose as she scrambled to her feet, turned snarling to face him. He reached out with one hand, scooped up the chair, and threw it at her. It felt as light as cardboard to him in that moment. It struck her on the side of the head as she fell backwards, crying out. He still had ropes around his ankles and jerked them loose, looking for another weapon to kill her with. Stunned, confused, she crawled to the door. She turned and stared dazedly at him. He hunkered, ready to spring at her. Panting, they stared at one another. She was within the nineteen, He wanted to kill her, but a second passed and he didn't spring. Neither did she. The betweenness was in her eyes, but it wouldn't last. Not now. RUN! He managed huskily, but she hesitated, and then the moment passed. February 2nd, 2024. I've met someone else. Her name is Elise. Pretty soon I'm going to tell her about the fence and the process. I'm going to try again. I have to try again. There was that one second when I was free and I didn't attack. Seeing the humanness in her eyes too for a moment, it gave me hope. That one second could telescope out to a lifetime of forbearance. Someday I'll get control of it. And then I can be honest with Elise and show her Brenda's grave.
1: Coming out of the story, we, we've had some more thunder outside. Just take a listen. There was the thunder. Yeah. Okay, where was I? Ah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, John. Uh, we hope to get more from you soon. And, in fact, I think we have some more from you that's in the queue waiting to find a voice. Besides his writing, John was lead singer in the punk band Sado Nation in 1978. And while living in New York City and Paris, France in the 1980s, he was in the post-punk funk rock band Obsession, and I'll never get to say that again, and later in the band The Panther Moderns. He's written 18 song lyrics recorded by Blue Oyster Cult. John currently lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with his wife, Michalina. They have three sons, twins, Byron and Perry, now 27, and Julian, a Bay Area-based underground rapper and recording artist. Narration on Isolation Point was by an old Tales to Terrify hand, or maybe I should say by an old Tales to Terrify throat, Joe Marco, You might remember Joe. He joined us a few weeks ago to narrate Barbara Barnett Stewart's Sins of the Living. Joe is from Los Angeles, but now lives in deepest, darkest Pennsylvania, doing things for Verizon Wireless. He says he's an aspiring voice actor and is focused on getting into animation and gaming. I've always been a proud geek, he says, and he has a soft spot in his heart for fantasy and science fiction. Well, thanks for your work here, Joe. And we'd love to aid your aspirations and have you back. Well,
3: that's it for the evening. Listen. Ah. Quiet. Quiet. The rain's
1: finished. The thunder's stopped. You shouldn't have much trouble making it home before it starts again. Uh Uh-oh. Ah. Lightning. Probably just a visual echo, yes? Heat lightning. Well, scoot along. You'll make it. Climb your stairs. Dry yourself. Climb into bed. Switch off the light and watch the lightning play across your ceiling. And, yes... Breathe, and, for goodness' sake, have pleasant dreams. Hmm?